Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And we're taking a different slant on this episode, and it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I find people either like to talk about it or they don't. But we're going to slant this from a leadership perspective. And let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. His name is Fred Gruy, and he is a hospice chaplain. Fred is a board certified chaplain through the Association of Professional Chaplains with a Doctor of Ministry degree from the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley. And he's also an ordained congregationalist minister working for Providence Hospice in Medford, Oregon. Fred's interest in working with the dying began early in the 1990s with the death of his best friend who succumbed to AIDS. What I love about Fred is he describes himself as a mystery, even to himself. He says he's middle-aged, bald, white man who believes that God loves him very much and the power of this belief has helped him transform a frightened, angry little man into a more loving, considerate human being. So Fred, welcome to Imperfect. Thank you so much, Deb, for uh, allowing me to, to join you. Well, I'm thrilled that our paths have crossed. I have been a volunteer at our local hospice here in London, Ontario for five years. And I find it's a topic that people are either willing to chat about or they get a little bit cringy. So I'm hoping you and I can shift that paradigm during our interview today. And my first leadership question is, in, in, in your biography, I, I shared about your best friend. That obviously left an imprint on your heart. And share with us your leadership journey of being that young man and losing such a best friend to the journey and where it has brought you today in in leading and helping and having the privilege with being with people at end of life. Well, Deb, as you say, look, the uh, when my when my buddy died of AIDS, well, to give you some context, okay, uh, I am a minister, been a minister my whole life. And uh, in those days, uh, I was uh, part of a Pentecostal charismatic denomination and my friend was also a part of that group my friend because in that day and age in the early 90 late 80s early 90s uh to be gay was something that was not acceptable in a number of those congregations at that time so he really couldn't divulge who he was and when he got diagnosed with aids i can remember we were uh in his kitchen uh, sitting on bar stools, uh, his wife and my wife had taken the kids and they were out doing stuff and he'd just gotten out of the hospital. He had been in with pneumonia and I can remember sitting on that bar stool and he looked at me and said, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, I got AIDS. 
And uh, it was one of those moments, Deb, you know, where like time just stops. It was frozen. And uh, I was overcome with an, a lot of emotions. I was, uh, uh, and, he, and he told me that he was gay. And uh, that was a paradigm that I, that shook, shook my world at the time. And yet here was this man that I loved, my dear brother, uh, who I knew had a death sentence and a horrible death sentence at that time. And uh, so I, I'm overcome, he's overcome. But in that moment, I felt uh, the grace of God somehow came upon me. And I got up off my stool, walked over, kissed him on the forehead and said, I love you, you're my brother. We'll go through this together. And that began a three-year journey. Uh, for part of that time, he came to live with my wife and I in another city because uh, he had a job that he could do. And, uh, and so I was with him for the journey of his death. And, and I saw how many of our friends just couldn't accept the fact that he was gay. And, and that was really painful. So that, the whole episode just shook my world. So as difficult and as painful as that was, uh, it brought out a kindness and a tenderness in me that I'd forgotten or didn't even know that I had. It, it made me a much better human being, being with him and going through that with him and his family. And his family was very supportive and wonderful as well. And uh, so it changed me. So I, uh, later in my own life, when I was looking for a career move in uh, my own uh, ministry, I thought about becoming a hospice chaplain because I had remembered how being with dying people had so much made me a better human being. And uh, so that's so about 15 years ago, I, or a little more, I transitioned to become a hospice chaplain. And in the last 15 years, I've been with about 3,000 folks that have died. And Deb, one of the crazy, you know, people often say to me, you know, it's not like you're at a cocktail party or something. And somebody goes, what do you do for a living? You know, it's, it's a great way to bring the whole party to a halt when you go, well, I'm a hospice chaplain. It's like uh, everybody goes silent. They, they uh, you know, tilt their head knowingly and look at you like your brother, Teresa, and I'm not. <laughs> it's actually a wonderful job. I love my job because it is filled with life. And what I love about my job, and for your leaders and friends that are uh, joining our conversation, what I love about it is there's no nonsense. By the time I get to meet people, the nonsense has been kicked out of them. I don't have to put up with silliness eh? because people realize the uh, their finitude, the gravity, it's coming to an end. And so they they want to explore and talk about the really important things in life, which I just love. Oh, there's so many nuggets in there. You know, you say you bring it up at a party and it's a great way to silence a room. And I'm often asked when I'm at hospice by people similar to my age who are with a aging parent, they look at me and they're like, how can you come to, how can you come here? And I lost my dad at 21 
And then I lost my grandmother right before I got married. And then I lost my brother to cancer. Then I lost a friend to cancer. And I feel like I had this tsunami of grief in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s. And when I decided to go and volunteer there five years ago, when I called and I was brought in for an interview, I never felt so at home and at peace and felt because I consider myself much like you, a servant leader, heart-centered servant leader, I feel so settled when I'm there and able to look back into that person's eyes and say, I know exactly how you feel. The relatability is immeasurable, but it's such an honor and privilege for me because I no longer process it as a trigger memory. I've decided to take my transferable skills and give back to have that relatability. And I just, I can't explain it to people, but I'm just so at peace when I'm there. And you know, that cliche where you feel you're at the right place at the right time in your life and you don't know why. And I just, it's really, really hard to explain, but I know that you get what I mean. And You've had the privilege of being with over 3,000 people. I'm certainly not at that many, but I'm proud to tell you that I've given more eulogies in my life than I have keynote speeches. And so to me, to be asked to give a eulogy at someone's funeral, again, people have cringed and it's like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I'm so honored. Like they want me to get up and talk about their life and who they were as a person. I just can't think of a better honor uh, than to honor another human being's life. Yeah. It, you know, it, the part of it too, I think is wiring. Um, Cause I am, I, I'm an off the chart introvert. Uh, and so and, and that just means there's a lot of misconceptions about being an introvert. It's not that introverts don't like people. Introverts like people very much. They just like them one-on-one, -on -one, not 20-on-one. 20 20-on-one 20 sucks the life out of me. One-on-one -on -one is invigorating. And so getting to be a hospice chaplain, uh, getting to, to meet people, you know, another thing that's helpful for me is I realize the people, the, the job I do, I really can't mess up all that much because the people I meet are having a really bad day. <laughs> and it's like, if I'm just nice, I'm going to make it better. So the threshold of success for what I do is not all that high. So I feel like whatever it is, just showing up and being kind is the greatest gift I can give. And I can do that one-on-one. -on -one. And it's a incredibly rewarding experience because you meet, like you just said, Deb, you meet people when they're raw emotionally and the bonding that occurs so quickly because of the situation, it, you go so deep, so fast, or I would say that the, the fertile soil is there for deep relationships so fast because I don't go, I don't become dear friends with everybody that I meet, but many of the people I meet, I do. And I, I think that goes to leadership. One of my, my favorite books is called The Spirituality of Imperfection, which uh, is it's a 12-step book. And it comes out of the 12-step movement, AA and all that. And the, the whole premise of the book is if you can 
meet someone or find someone that you trust that you can share your vulnerabilities with your failures with your fears with if you can find someone like that that's where community and communion and a relationship is if you and i sit down and talk about all the conferences we've been to the keynotes we've given the this and that we'll learn about each other but we won't connect but if we can find a place where we are safe enough to share what really scares us what what uh the failures we've had we will connect at a deep level and i i think for leadership that's really important learning to share vulnerability is a way to create community and yet our natural inclination is to run from our vulnerabilities to run from those things that we're less than perfect in but that's the stuff that really connects us which we experience in hospice work because the people i meet can't hide their vulnerabilities anymore absolutely and it leads nice into my next question that i ask all my guests what imperfections have you brought to your heart-centered leadership oh boy you ask tough questions deb and and you didn't pre-send these to me. So this is so I can't even I can't even come up with a witty answer because I had thought about so I would say, you know, I think early in my chaplain training, I had a wonderful mentor named Scott, Scott Davis. He was my supervisor. And he told me that when you're a chaplain, you've got to learn to do the hokey pokey. And he said, when you walk into a room, you put your whole self in and you take your whole self out. But when you go in, vulnerabilities, fears, and all, I remember, I'll tell you, here's another story. Uh, I can remember a patient early in my chaplain training. I was at a hospital in St. Louis where I did my residency. And it was, uh, you know, it was a big, big hospital. And uh, what you don't know in the background story is my mother died at 44, similar to my friend that died with AIDS. I helped care for her and the same thing and brought a great strength and kindness out of me. So anyway, she died at 44 from breast cancer. Another wonderful story that helped shape my life. So I'm early in my chaplain training and I, they send me into this room. They've just told this lady that she's got breast cancer and I walk in and all I can see is my mother. I mean, she was, this was a wonderful lady. I'd never met her before, but when I looked at her, all I saw was my mother. Her husband was sitting in the corner of her room. The, the lights were off. It was gray, dim. He was just blankly staring out the window. When I looked at him, I just saw my dad. And so I looked at her and I sit down and I said, hi, I'm the hospice chaplain. And then I just burst into tears. Now my mother had died 20 years before this, but you know, grief because you you know, you do a lot of grief work as a volunteer with your hospice. I was instantly back. It was 20 years before, and I'm sitting in the room with my own mother and father, even though these were two strangers I was with. So here's this poor lady that's just been diagnosed with cancer, <laughs> and she's sitting by her bed. The chaplain walks in, sits down, and bursts into tears. <laughs> and, and so she goes, what's going on with you? And so I told her the whole story, and she told me her story. And we deeply connected. And when we got done, she goes, will you come back again tomorrow? 
And it, now that was not planned. And I, you know, it just, it was a moment in time that just happened, but our uh, similar vulnerabilities and pains connected us in such a deep way in, in an hour. We were like, we had known each other for a long time. And so that was an incredible privilege. But I try not to hide my own weaknesses or shortcomings because I've, I, you know, I've learned if you're going to invite someone to that tender place that's scary, oftentimes if you're in the power position and the minister is in one of those jobs, it's a power position, you know, the holy man of God shows up and you got to watch what you, but I've learned if you go first and as a leader, if you want to take things to a deeper level, generally the leader needs to go first to say, this is safe. This is who I am. And then the others will follow into that place uh, that you have carved out. Absolutely. And I, I love the whole heart centered approach that you have. And I think you hit a really important point that I'd like to anchor at the end of life. There is no more vulnerability to not be shown. It's, it's the end and it's a really special place. I call it the sweet spot because it's the intersection of that connection that you spoke about and it's hard to verbalize it. It's, um, you're just, you're all in from every element of your being cognitively, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And it is such a, an honor to do that. I've had, I've had so many kind of deja vus at hospice. I even landed up looking after the cardiologist that looked after my dad. So that that's what I call full circle moment. Now, my next question that I know you'll give uh, some light around is I, how, how can you explain to people in, in layman's terms how to accept and process a trigger memory? Because this is something that people think that grief is a process. And yes, it is. And I, I love the definitions that I've read over the years, but my favorite is that grief is just love with no place to go. But much like you walking in that room and seeing that woman, you saw your mother, that was a trigger memory for you. How can we help our listeners recognize, have awareness and be able to process this and not seeing it as a regression, but what I like to frame as a fall forward. There's so much written on grief. And what I tell a lot of the folks that I visit, most of the stuff written on grief is really, really good. And it's really, really bad. And here, because people read the grief literature, and then they try to use it as a chart or a map for their own process, as you're saying. And there's no one size that fits all. And so someone may read, you know, well, in, you know, six months to a year, you might be feeling this. And then they look at themselves and they're not there and they feel like a failure. And so I say, read all the grief literature you want. It's helpful, but don't, it's not carved in stone by the finger of God. It's just what might occur. It's not a chart or a map for you. Your process is going to be unique unto yourself and you just do what you can 
there's a, a wonderful spiritual writer named Henry Nowen that I love. He, he actually, uh, when he died, he was in Toronto at a large community. He was a volunteer. Nowen was a Catholic priest who taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. And then he ended up the last 10 years of his life in Toronto in a house with uh, special needs people, people that were mentally challenged. And he was just a caregiver. And he spent 10 years taking care of a man named Adam who couldn't bathe himself or toilet himself or feed himself or clothe himself. So here's this incredibly well-known spiritual writer of the 20th century. Now and must have written 30 or 40 books taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. The last 10 years of his life, he is bathing and feeding and toileting a man named Adam that could not verbally communicate. And now and said those were the richest 10 years of his life. But one of the, one of the things now and says about uh, grief and that stuff he says, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. You know, you're going down the road and you fall into a ditch. You have a, one of those memories that just reaches up and grabs your bowels and your day isn't, you hear a song on the radio or you see a picture that brings back the memory of your loss and you are just nuked. You, out of nowhere, the tears start flowing and you can't think of anything else. Well, what Nowen said is, you know, so you've fallen into a ditch. So you just, you know, after it passes, get back up on your bike and keep going. You're not back where you started, you know, when the day began, you're just, you just get back up and you continue going forward. And I think, you know, grief can be like that. When it shows up, you just surrender to it. Trying to fight it only makes it worse. So you just give into it, but trusting that it will pass and that uh, the skies will open and a new day will come at some point. And so you just get back up and continue the journey. But all of life, you know, Deb, I think, is one grief after another. Think of it this way. You know, a child that is born comes out of the uterus and the, the only home it has ever known for nine months or so, all its nutrients, its safety, its warmth, all in that uterus. So one day comes, it gets shoved through this small canal, comes out into a womb or the, uh, an open room, and there is a doctor to slap you on the ass and say, welcome to your new reality. You know, wait a minute, this isn't. And, so, and then, you know, as we're growing, we you know, we get favorite toys and a favorite blanket and they go by the wayside and we grieve those losses. And then the day comes where we have to go to school for the first day and we have to leave home and we grieve the loss of home. And then we go to school and we adapt and we make friends. And then the day comes, we graduate from school and we lose all those friends. And then we have to go find a job or get married or partner up or whatever. And so we do that for a while. And then the day comes, that ends. So all of life is a series of griefs and there are a series of transitions from one way of living to a new one. And uh, they're hard, they're difficult, it's part of life, but there's always a doorway into something new that can be experienced, a new way of being. And that's one of the gifts that grief affords or offers to us, a new way of being in the world. Oh, I talk about that all the time because I'm also a yoga teacher and... Yeah. You know, we're not meant to be human doings. We are to be, and that's a whole other podcast, Fred. 
one of the easy to say and hard to do deb to be it's easy to say be a human being not a human doing so easy to say but my god is that hard to do absolutely it is and it's like you said it's it's a journey and i just wanted to give some context to you before i ask you my last leadership question i was a disability case manager for 21 years and my last five executives three vps two ceos started off on a short-term disability claim for stress landed up with a long-term disability claim became palliative held five hands at the end of life and they all said you need to do something about this if anyone's going to do something it's going to be you and i didn't know what that was going to be i didn't get attached to the outcome i just i just embraced the moment and said to them that i you know i would really put some thought and after the last one died i remember him saying to me have you ever thought about getting out of the generalist space and being in the preventionist space and that's why i moved into coaching because success and leadership is all about working your way up that proverbial ladder to the top when you hit the glass ceiling and then you get there but if you don't have connection with people or someone to enjoy from the journey everything comes with a price and that's why I got into coaching. So my last question, and this is for all the leaders out there, I don't care if you're an executive VP or a C-suite leader, from your vantage point, Fred, what could you share with the leaders listening to this podcast? Give them one specific thing that you feel they can find or create to have meaning in their life. <laughs> One, yeah, the meaning of life. Oh, that's a simple question, Deb. <laughs> here's, you know, as I listened uh, to your own story, here's in the journey that propelled you to be who you are and what you are today. You know, I thought of the, the 3,000 folks or so I've been with, you know, not one of them has ever said to me, well, I wish I'd have gone to more football games or I wish I'd have spent more time online or I wish I'd have spent more time building a career. Not None of that. All that matters at the end are the people that love you and the people you love. Now, I think one of the ways to help us get, so it's easy to say, well, go love people or, you know, go create relationships. Well, how do we do, you know, relationships are hard. They're difficult. And for an introvert like myself, I go about it differently than an extrovert would. But I would say one specific thing that has been one of the things I've learned from the, the folks I've been with that have taught me really, really well, and that is to embrace the paradox. Uh, embracing paradox is a, a sign of, of all the great spiritual leaders and teachers throughout the centuries for thousands of years, the Greeks, the Eastern wisdom teachers, uh, the Taoists, the, the Zen masters, uh, the Christian leaders. Embracing paradox is an important thing. And the paradox the dying have taught me is this. One of the best things I can do to prepare for my dying, my eventual death, 
is to live a fully engaged life now. And one of the greatest aids to live a fully engaged life now is to realize I'm going to die. It's going to come to an end. I call that the dying well paradox. And so realizing I'm not going to have every day, tomorrow is not promised to me, invest in the relationships, uh, the people that I love and the people that love me, treat them today the way I want to, because there's no guarantee I'm going to come back from work tomorrow to see my wife. And so realizing every day is a gift and that it's going to come to an end at some point. My mental acuity will fade. My looks will fade. <laughs> Not that I have that many. Uh, but it's all, so to really live an engaged life now, and that means the relationships, the people that I care about, because you can't get those back. Now, you're also, you're listening to a man who's 68, all right? So it's not like I'm 28 and I'm, you know, just recently partnered and want to raise kids and get a career. So I, I think it, it goes with the stages of life. That's part of it. But investing in those relationships, I, uh, James Taylor says it best, shower the people you love with love. And one of the key things I've learned in building relationships is, I know you asked for one thing, but here's a key thing. It's, it's okay to say, I love you. I'm like, Deb, I love you. That's a, that's a nice thing to say. But there is so much more power and it opens up so much more depth of relationship if I can tell you why I love you. I love you because you are so loyal to your friends or I love you because you just stop what you're doing if someone's really in need and they need your attention. It doesn't matter how important or how busy your day is. You stop and you give them your heart. That's what I love. If you can tell the people you care about why you love them and what's so special and unique about them, that's what really develops deep relationship because all of us want to hear how we're special who doesn't want to be told you're unique and beautiful and wonderful in this way it opens us up like a flower and we can't get enough of that so that to me uh, is an incredibly important thing if you have i have a, a a story if we have the time i'm looking for you so you're nodding at me all right so you deb's given me the go-ahead to share this story. I can remember one of the folks I met that taught me this is a guy I call Ben. Now, when the nurse came back from visiting Ben, she was laughing. She said, Ben wants to see you. Now, normally folks don't offer to say, oh yeah, I want to see the hospice chaplain because they think I'll show up with a hood and a sickle or something. But anyway, Ben wanted to see me. So I went to see Ben. When I met Ben, he had a deep, gravelly voice. I think he must have smoked 500 cigarettes in the first hour I was there. One right, he was lighting them one right after another. And he had this gravelly voice, and every other word was the F bomb, chaplain F. And uh, he just, and I, and he just wanted to vent. And he told me he had grown up, uh, his father had been an alcoholic and had beaten he and his mother. Uh, relentlessly until magically when Ben turned 10, his father deserted them and they were liberated from being beaten by a drunken man who had been a police officer, actually. And uh, Ben told me on his 21st birthday, 
he went out and got drunk, tracked his dad down and beat the crap out of him and said, it was the greatest day of my life. It was better than any sex I've ever had the day I beat my father. So this is, he then uh, had a colorful life. He was a collection agent for mobsters. And so he spent a lot of time in prison uh, because that's not looked upon well in our country. And uh, so this is who Ben was. But at one point he told me uh, after he got out of jail, he was in his mid thirties or something. He uh, met a woman named Katrina that changed his life. He said when he met Kat, he fell in love, and he had never loved anyone. And for the first time in his life, he had done things for someone else, not for himself. And it so changed him. And I met him. He was in his 60s or 70s. Kat had died a number of years before from some kind of cancer or something. He was partnering with another woman at that point. And all he did was smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and talk with our gravelly voice and tell his stories. And I would go week after week and I fell in love with Ben. And it was about a week before he died. He looked at me and said, why do you do this? Why do you come here? What do you get out of this? And I said, I, I looked at him. He couldn't even smoke cigarettes anymore. He was on his bed. I said, Ben, you are an icon of hope for me. And he said, I'm a what? What the hell? I said, you are an icon of hope. I said, I look at you and I see a guy that was dealt bad cards from the beginning. But the power of love so liberated you that you were able to change. And I figure if love can change you, maybe it can change me. Now, Deb, all I did was reflect back to him, his own story of what had changed him. And it, he started to cry, and I started to cry. And a week later, he died, and he is forever in my heart. He's a dear friend. He's a teacher. And so I think if we can reflect back to people what is so unique and beautiful about them, oh, my God, does it, it help foster deep, lasting relationships? And you make a good point, you know, not just at end of life, but find us any human who doesn't want to be seen and heard and loved and appreciated and valued and, and validated and even more so at the end of life. And I've had many bends in my in my role at hospice. And when you can get through that outer hard shell and, and lower that wall of resistance and they realize that you're there for a meaningful conversation and connection and you're not just coming in the room because you have to, it's because you want to. Uh, I've had very, very similar experiences and uh, it just touches your soul. It's, 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 you know, you look up and think, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. I got it. Uh, that's how I feel. And I've had so many moments and I have a happy face that sits on my bookshelf from the first woman, uh, that I looked after at hospice and, um, her whole room was covered in these happy faces. And you brought up a good point earlier in the interview. And she said, this is hospice. We're here to live to the last yes. breath. And Absolutely. I was like, I love that because it's so home-like and it doesn't feel like a hospital or an institution and getting off the elevator and smelling, you know, fresh baked good and, and just the energy and the atmosphere. It's just peaceful doesn't give it enough description. And I know that you're familiar with it, but if anything, if people listening today can just realize 
not to be afraid and, and to explore. And it's hard that we have to make these decisions for our loved ones, but to give them end of life in such a beautiful place, I think it's priceless. Well, look, a lot of the folks that uh, listen to your podcast, these conversations are leaders. And I think it's a, the hospice story is a fabulous story because it was really begun. It, there were hospices in the Middle Ages, but they died away. And it was really resurrected in the late 60s by a fabulous woman, woman leader, Dame Cicely Saunders in England. And her goal was to not help people die. Her goal was to help ensure people live every day the best quality of life they can by getting their pain well-managed and under control. So from the very first days of the hospice movement, the modern hospice movement, the goal has always been to be able to live as fully engaged a life as we can for as long as we can. And that's the goal. Now, people think hospice, well, they just come in and give you morphine and you die. That is not what hospice, hospice is about making every day as good as possible. From the, from the get-go by the wonderful leader, Dame Cicely Saunders. That's a, good, uh, that's a good reference. Thank you for that. So I'm going to switch to my Fab Four. Just four fun questions about Fred. First question. <laughs> oh, God. Tell us something we don't know about Fred. Oh, all right. I was a cab driver in New York City for two years. I wanted to be an actor. So to support my acting habit, I drove a taxi cab. Transferable skills right there. There you go. And I'm sure you met all kinds of people in the backseat of, uh, of all that cab. All kinds of, all <laughs> kinds of people. Second question. Who's someone that you admire the most? That's easy. I love Thomas Merton. I've never met Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton died in 1968. But Thomas Merton was a Catholic Cistercian monk. He, he grew up uh, the son of an artist, traveled the world, was somewhat, uh, you know, lived a very colorful, shall we say, life. And uh, early in his 20s, had a conversion experience to Roman Catholicism, ended up going to a monastery in Kentucky and uh, has written 50 or 60 books and just, uh, I read from Thomas Merton every day. He just is a forward-thinking uh, leader, teacher. I mean, many. I mean, he met the Dalai Lama. He knew Thich Nhat Hanh. He, uh, he, he opened up a whole world far beyond Roman Catholicism of spirituality, a brilliant thinker. And one of the things I love about Merton the most is he was terribly inconsistent. Like he, he journaled and his journals are his best writing. But in one day he'll say he hates the poet Rilke. Rilke is a hack and you should never. And then three days later, oh, this is a brilliant line from Rilke. I love Rilke. And so one of the things that Merton taught me is there's no, who cares whether you're consistent or not inconsistent. There's a lot to be said for inconsistency about really doing the hokey pokey, throw your whole self in, in the moment. And if it's a different moment tomorrow, who cares? Absolutely. Third question. Name one thing that's on your bucket list. 
I want to go see the All Blacks play rugby in New Zealand. I lived in England for a couple of years and being homesick in England, uh, I, I can't get into soccer. Soccer just does nothing for me. I mean, to spend 90 minutes on a pitch to end up with a nil-nil tie, who cares, all right, you know. So, but, but I did fall in love with rugby, which was the, uh, the, the f- father or mother of our American football. And so I became a rugby fan in England and I got to see the All Blacks play in England and oh my God, are they incredible. And the haka, they, the dance they do before the match is so incredible. So I would love to get to New Zealand and watch the All Blacks play. Amazing. And my last question, Fred, is what do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. What do I want? You know... I guess on my tombstone, it just two words. He tried, you know, he just, he tried. He tried to be loving. He tried to be kind. He tried to be open to the wonder of life. He tried as best he could with all his imperfections, with all his limitations, with all the life experiences that happen to every one of us that are, you know, damaging and traumatizing and grief, you know, in, in, infused. In the middle of it all, he just tried. He tried to stay open to the wonder of God, the wonder of life, the wonder of love. I love that. Well, Fred, thank you for spending time with me today on the show and for sharing your heart. I know that you're going to continue to cultivate gratitude, continue to be more generous and shower people with love and if anything i hope people take away today the message that grief doesn't have to be a negative thing hospice is an approachable place and just continued success for what you're doing and the work you do with the people you do it with and deb right back at you i am so thrilled to hear your story and how you have evolved and how life is brought you to the place of coaching and doing what you do uh, to help the preventative stuff of, of helping people really live now while they can as well. So blessings, blessings on you and your work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fred. And thanks for listening today. If you like the show, we'd love for you to give us a star rating and a review. We're going to put all of Fred's stuff below in the podcast episode description and you can find him on social and I want to thank you for joining me again on Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast.